Uh, good morning, Orangewood. It's good to be with you and to continue our series in the book of Philippians. Paul's letter, one of his favorite churches, and they were one of his favorite churches because they just were a, a good group of people. They weren't a perfect church, but, but a great group of people. And so our series is Grace on Fire. The church in Philippi uh, was, was a Roman colony. It's in northern uh, Greece. And, uh, and a colony, a Roman colony, is an interesting place. Because even though they were in the middle of Greece or in northern Greece, they acted like Romans. They talked like Romans. They, they ate like Romans. They dressed like Romans. They were Romans. It was a colony. It was Rome away from Rome. And as a result, they were unique group of people. Philippi was a place set up for ex-military, and so the ex-military were, were widely settled there. Here's a <clears throat> cool thing about being ex-military in the Roman army. Your tax burden was a lot lower. I just thought I'd bring that up. David brought it up once here today. Uh, this is a tax week. You know that, of course, right? And I, and I hope you're happy about that uh, no, I don't. Uh, but the reality is it, it, it had a lower tax burden and it was, a, it was a, a, an interesting church. Every church is different. I'll never forget hearing uh, of Orangewood's start. And some of you still uh, pass on those stories about Orangewood getting started in a storefront. I'll never forget uh, Chuck Green talking about how it was a, a storefront like a bowling alley, narrow. Uh, some of you were there. You know what that's like. Our church, Willow Creek, got started in our home and in a storefront. Uh, not like a bowling alley, a little bit better. The, the church in Philippi got started in where? A prison. Got started in a prison, and it grew from there. Very, very unique church. Every church is unique. Every church is different in how it gets started. Uh, my father-in-law soon as I was ordained to the ministry here at Orangewood, said, uh, said to me, Pete, don't join a perfect church because if you do, you'll ruin it. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. I appreciate your confidence. Uh, but the reality is there is no perfect church. Philippi wasn't a perfect church. Orangewood's not a perfect church. And, you know, some of us, we think about the, the, what is the church? The church is God's people constantly in motion, isn't it? Read the book of Acts. People coming, going. Uh, we see that in the book of Philippi. A lot of transitions. Those things happen. That's the world in which we live. And the great news about the church of Jesus Christ is that there's one head of the church, one king of the church. And he's here, he's large, and he's in charge, and we can trust him no matter what the transition's going on. So before we look again into this letter, let's quickly bow our heads and hearts in prayer and talk to the king of the church. Our great Lord Jesus Christ, we come into your presence today thanking you that we can pray so freely, that we can move into your presence because of how you have enabled us to, to become the children, redeemed, beloved children of the Most High God. And so we honor you today, our, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship you we enjoy being your children. We relax in you right now. And we're thankful that we have been, been redeemed, but also then called into your body, your church. And so, Lord, now before we look into your word, we, we ask that you would meet us. You know, every one of us, you know the stories of every person in this room. You know those who are worried a little bit about tomorrow. 
about the tax burden, about the bills that have to be paid. You, you know those who are worried about financial issues or court cases or health problems. Lord, you know all of us. And Lord Jesus, you are our head. You are our leader. You're our king. And so we come to you now. We ask that you would be all that we need now. And so we pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. Lead us, we pray, in your strong name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at 11 verses. Philippians 3, 1 through 11, before we take communion today, where the Apostle Paul begins under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we're the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself also might put confidence in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is God's holy word to us. You know, this is one of the most brief and crystal clear, concise statements of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It's powerful how clear and concise this is. And sometimes brevity and conciseness is good, particularly in preachers, right? You know, it's very important. I love this <clears throat> brief and concise prayer that a man prayed on January 1. He said, dear God, all I ask for is a big fat bank account and a slim body. Please don't mix these up like you did last year. <laughs> I, <clears throat> that's a bold prayer, isn't it? Uh, but brevity and conciseness is important sometimes. And uh, like the teacher asked this uh, student to give a clear and concise statement about Socrates' life. Four statements summarize Socrates, the great philosopher's life. The student said Socrates lived a long time ago. Number two, he was a very intelligent man. Number three, Socrates gave long speeches. Number four, his friends poisoned him. <laughs> I liked that succinct statement. Now I wonder, would it be possible for us to give as clear and concise a statement of Christianity uh, as that man did about Socrates? 
It's important that we do that. It's important that we have clarity on what the gospel, crystal clear clarity on the gospel, to be relentlessly clear about it and, and, and to be relentlessly Christ-centered. That This pulpit, this church has always been and will continue to be relentlessly focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and that's what's important for us. And as the Apostle Paul says in this text that we're going to look at, he wants us to have a crystal clear idea about what the gospel is. Because if we don't, we'll be in trouble. Some years ago, one really sweet lady for Christmas gave me, uh, I think it was just me, she wanted it on my desk and in my office, this piece of Waterford crystal. Now, I'm, I'm not really artistic, so it's hard for me to really appreciate art as it should be appreciated. But this has is, this is got some really elegant etchings in it. And it, it is clear. Crystal clear. And um, there's a beauty, there's a beauty to crystal clarity, elegance, foundational things that are solid. And if the gospel is crystal clear in our minds, it brings an, a sense of the beauty of God into our lives in a deep way. It, 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 it brings strength and foundational stability that we need. On the other hand, if the gospel is not clear in our lives, it leads to all kinds of problems. It leads us down the road toward a legalism, toward a, a self-righteousness, toward a mean-spiritedness of competition among ourselves as we try to prove who we are in Christ. Crystal clarity is absolutely important for the gospel. And so that's why Paul wants to be very clear that the Philippians, who were under some pressures, will see. Uh, he wants the Philippians to have that clarity about what the gospel is. We always need to be reminded of it. And so in these 11 verses, what Paul does is he unpacks a, a statement about the clarity of the gospel. He gives them two commands, and then he tells more of his story and how the clarity of the gospel transformed him. So that's what the sermon's going to be today. I want to give you two commands that Paul gives, and then I want to look at his story briefly before we sit before the table of our Lord and understand the crystal clarity of the gospel. So first of all, Paul gives us uh, one of two commands. He gives us personal reminders in verses three, chapter three, verse 1a. He says, finally, my brethren, and Rejoice in the Lord. And by the way, ladies, of course, that includes you. Finally, brethren and sistren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, the word finally there is one of those words that, that probably needs a little bit of explanation. He's not at the end of his message, is he? I mean, he's got 44 more verses. He's got two more chapters. Paul is not done. And, and, so, and so really, it probably ought to be translated something like this. Uh, for the rest, for the rest... Rejoice in the Lord. In other words, Paul's got a lot more to say. He's not like the pastor who closes his Bible and says, finally, and then so you close your Bible or turn off your iPhone or whatever, and he's not done, <laughs> you know? That drives you crazy. Paul's got more to say, and he's got some very important things to say. And, and what he's saying here is he's saying, finally, or for the rest, what I want to tell you is, here's the command, rejoice in the Lord. And joy is a big part of the book of Philippians. As a matter of fact, 
some uh, biblical scholars call Philippians the book of joy, uh, the, epistle, the epistle of joy. There's, the word joy and rejoice are found so many times in it. Joy and rejoicing is, is a big part of this. And here's a command to rejoice in the Lord. Now, chapter two just ended. We looked at it last week. Chapter two ended and he said, yeah, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And then uh, I'm going to come to you. But right now I got to send Epaphroditus to you because Epaphroditus is one of your guys, your messenger and minister to our needs here in Rome. And so when, when Epaphroditus gets back, rejoice in the Lord because of him. So he brought up that idea. He says, he says, you rejoice because of Timothy. You rejoice because of me. I'm coming to you. You rejoice because of Epaphroditus. But ultimately he says in verse one, hey, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus Christ and him crucified and all that he's done for you uh, because he is the center of what we are a part. Find your deepest joys in Jesus and in the work of Jesus Christ for you. That's where our true source of rejoicing ought to be, not running off into other sources. Stephen Olford once said that many people endure the Christian life rather than enjoy it. Many people endure the Christian life rather than enjoy it. And it's true. You've met them. You know those people who are enduring the Christian life. It's kind of like, I started out. It's not all that good anymore. I'm not enjoying it that much, but I'm not going to give it up. I've got too many friends who would be upset if I weren't in church. And you know those Christians you talk to, you say, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm doing all right. Under the circumstances, I'm getting through. And you know, you're, you're just saying, you know, they're enduring it. They're just putting up with it. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Life is very difficult. But I don't, want my, I don't want Christianity to be something that I'm just enduring. There's too many other things I have to endure in life, like complicated tax forms. And I tell you this week is, yeah, I know, I got to endure that. Now, you CPAs out there, and you know who you are. You like this time of the year, sort of. It's a little too busy for you, but... But there's too much else that I have to endure in life that I don't want to endure, I like growth. I like progress. Don't you? We talked about this last week. I, I don't mind the road work. What I hate is when the road work leads to more signals being put in because that means more a demand on me slowing down and sitting at those signals. Pray for the virtue of patience. It's still one of those struggles I have. There's so many things we have to endure. I was sitting at the stoplight into our housing development and it was like, change. The light wouldn't change. It's like, I timed it. I knew it was going to be 10 minutes. It's two minutes. <laughs> I got to endure so many things in a complicated culture today. It should not be our walk with Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. And uh, again, I say rejoice. Let me tell you about joy. Joy Joy really is a deep-seated part of the Christian life. It's what Christ produces. It's what the gospel produces in us, regardless of the circumstances. It's that sense that our, our internal self has been completely redeemed. That even though the circumstances in life are not what we want them to be, not what we envision them to be, but that, but that in Christ, because of Christ, there is a solidity to our lives. There's a confidence in our life. 
that truly all things can and will work together for good. It, it is this sense that therefore emotionally I can trust. Joy is something that intellectually is based in the gospel, but moves to the heart and unleashes us in a confidence, a, a world of trust. And so that's why Paul says in verse one, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. I am gonna hammer the gospel of grace. Because that is what leads to joy and the crystal clarity of the gospel that we need to live our lives. And a lot of the world, by the way, the world needs more of us to experience the joy of the gospel. And those of you who are task-oriented like me know it's hard sometimes to feel the joy of the gospel. I got stuff to do. Jesus is depending on me. I want to make it happen. And, 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 we, and we don't enjoy as much as we should. Uh, I have this, this, this little piece on my desk too. And my desk is very crowded because of these things that people have given me. This is a little Karen. My daughter-in-law, Allie, gave it to me years ago. It's, uh, I've broken it a couple of times. Thank you for good glue. Um, but it's, a Karen is a pile of rocks that shows the direction you ought to go in life uh, on a trail if you're hiking. And uh, I keep this on my desk. Remember, just before she married my son, she went on this trip to Montana with her parents and bought this for me. She loves me. I like that, that she loves me. And this is a reminder of her, and she loves my son, and she loves our three kids, and that, that uh, my son married well, and that we have a great daughter-in-law. It reminds me of the relationships I need reminders of relationships because I get so caught up in tasks. I need to be reminded of God's love for me. Don't you? So that I will rejoice in him and not try to find my joy in the shifting sands of life. Uh, Rejoice in in the Lord. So here's a challenge for you, uh, as it is with me. Who do you have in your life that is relentlessly grace-oriented, that is almost always off the chart, talking to you about the grace of God, who will always bring you back when you fail or when your life uh, situations fall apart, somebody who will always come to you and remind you that it is not about what you accomplish for God, not what you perform for God, but what, what Christ performed for you. Who do, you, who do you have in your life? If you don't have somebody like that, you got to find somebody like that. We need those people uh, to, to remind us. Personal reminders of the grace of God gives us crystal clarity that Jesus performed for us. So that's the first command. The second command that Paul gives the Philippians to have a crystal clarity about, about, about what the gospel really is, is he, he, t- he commands them to have healthy paranoia. I like this one. This is easier for me. Healthy paranoia, verse two. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Don't you? I love that. Command, command, command. Bam, bam, bam. Beware, beware, beware. Uh, some of the uh, other translations are not as powerful as this is. Some say, look, uh, look, look. No, beware, beware, beware. What kind of people 
is Paul referring to when he's calling the Philippians to have a healthy paranoia? He calls them dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. You dog lovers are not going to like this. Uh, but these are not positive uh, epithets. These, this is all negative. Uh, the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision are the Judaizers. Those are the, those are the people that, that um, were, wanted to, to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wanted to make Christianity, okay, Jesus and other things. And, and some of us remember back in Acts 15, remember back in Acts 15 where the Apostle Paul went to the first council, the first ecumenical council of the church in Jerusalem where the issue was brought up, can Gentiles come to faith in Christ? How is that settled, by the way? You look around, mostly Gentiles here. It's a good thing. What was settled at the Jerusalem Council is that the gospel of Jesus Christ could go not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And, here, and here's, the, here's the caveat. They could come to faith in Christ and they didn't have to become Jews before they came to Christ. That's good news, isn't it? Is that good news? Yeah, that's good news, you guys. Because you don't have to follow the law. Or you don't have to do all of the ceremonial aspects of the law. In other words, you don't have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. Well, there's freedom in the gospel. The, the law is a grace that leads us to Christ. The law is a grace that shows us how to live. But, but the law is not a means to salvation. But the Judaizers would follow Paul wherever he went. He'd go and start a church and preach about the grace of Christ. And who would show up a few weeks later? These Judaizers, they'd show up afterwards and say, yeah, I know what Paul told you. Yeah, but Paul's kind of falling away. He's not telling you the truth. And they would give a Jesus and. They dogged Paul. They dogged Jesus. Then they dogged Paul and they will dog you. I like dogs. Typically, we had a dog, a boxer. He, a wonderful dog. He was... Um, he was a Christian, but he was not reformed. Uh, uh, will I see him in heaven? I don't know. Um, it's like the guy who called into the talk show host said, is my dog going to be in heaven? And the guy had heard that so many times. He, was, he said, I don't know. When you get there, whistle and see if he shows up. <laughs> but you know what I would do when I'd look into the eyes of Jake, the boxer? I'd look right into those big brown eyes. You know what I saw? Absolutely nothing. But when you look into the eyes of a Judaizer, you know what you would see? Jesus is okay. But it's got to be Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and the Sabbath. Jesus and all of these regulations. Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and. Now Jesus and, or uh, it just doesn't work. That's not the gospel. The crystal clarity of the gospel is Jesus alone for our salvation, right? The church I served in New England uh, was, was a great church. And uh, the, the lady who is one of the, the mother of the church one time came up to me as I was right out of seminary and right there as their first as a pastor. And she said, you want to come over for coffee and after church tonight? That's when we had church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and every day in between. She said, you want to come over for coffee and after church? I said, what's coffee and? 
And she said, you know. I said, no, I don't. I'm from California. I don't know. Coffee and cookies. Coffee and donuts. Coffee and cake. I said, I'm there. (laughs) Coffee and anything is great. But Jesus and anything is disaster. It'll kill us. It'll make us self-righteous. Difficult to live with. Let me give you a truth. Someone around you is always trying to undo grace. Satan hates Jesus only gospel more than you know. And he's always trying to connect us with something else to make us go back to that. So we have to have a healthy paranoia about a Jesus end. You say you're belaboring the point. I know, I know. That's why I have this lacrosse stick. My daughter played lacrosse all through high school. Fifth grade on through high school. And when she'd go jogging, she carried the lacrosse stick. Because, you know, when you're in sports, you got to carry the lacrosse stick wherever you go, basketball or whatever. She's graduated from high school. I say, do you have your lacrosse stick with you? Wherever you I want her to be on. I, wanted, I loved it when she used to run with the lacrosse stick because there's dangerous people out there. They're called boys. <laughs> I want her to be armed, dangerous, and that much paranoid. And you should be too. The application and a challenge on this is to understand that given our theological backgrounds, you might be like me. The truth is, I'm better at being paranoid than being joyful. Because I've been trained to be paranoid. To think theologically, to think biblically, to get the details down. And so when I interact with other Christians, a lot of times it's kind of like there's a... there's. This narrative of suspicion going on behind. My ministry today, I want you to know, I deal with Episcopalians, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, non-denoms, and everybody in between. And, and when I first started doing that, I was like, I got to teach all these guys. I have the truth, they don't. But, but I would have this suspicion. And I've learned that, you know, they love Jesus too. And sometimes those of us who have this narrative of paranoia, we need to lighten up. But some of you need to have a little bit more paranoia. Somebody mentions the name Jesus and you go, yeah, you're a Christian. Maybe not. We need to know the truth and the gospel. We need to think of the truth of the gospel and the word, and it's got to get to it from our head to our hearts and from our hearts to our lives, right? I mean, it's got to, it can't bypass the heart or we're in trouble. But some of us do need to think more deeply. So Paul tells uh, the, the, the Philippians, first of all, if you want gospel clarity, you got to have personal reminders uh, to rejoice in Jesus. Secondly, to have a paranoia about those that want to destroy grace. But then Paul gets his story and he gives the, the, the crystal clarity of how the gospel changed him. I love this. Verses 3 to 11. Some of you are saying, whoa, you spent too much time on the other verses. I know. But here we go. You ready? Paul says, with gospel clarity, this is what has happened to me. This is what has happened to you, Philippians. This is what's happened to us. He says, we're the true circumcision. The false circumcision cut themselves uh, in, in religious ways to get the attention of God. We're the true circumcision. The word he used over, uh, uh, when he called them the false circumcision is a, a, 
That's kind of a scandalous term. He called them the mutilation, but we're the true circumcision that speaks of purity before God. He says, we're the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What the gospel has done is it has made us people because, because the gospel has come into us and transformed us. We worship in the spirit of God. You know, the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial in any of us coming to faith in Christ. We wouldn't have done it without the work of the Spirit. But the Spirit of God is also the one who enables us to worship so that it's not merely emotional, but internal and real and emotional as well. So the Spirit of God causes us to worship in the Spirit of God, to glory in Christ Jesus, to keep relentlessly Christ-centered, and then also to put no confidence in the flesh, in the sense that we're contributing to our salvation. But Paul is, I love his authenticity. You know what grace does? Grace makes you honest, sometimes blatantly honest with people that makes them feel a little uncomfortable. And, right, and that's, what, that's what happened. He says, uh, in verse four, he says, although I, I myself might have confidence in the flesh. <laughs> if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I far more. Don't you love that honesty? He's, he's not just saying what I do right. He's saying, this is what I've struggled with. And then he talks about four things that he inherited from his parents and three things that he worked for that would give him a confidence to make it a Jesus and kind of Christianity for him. He, said, he says, on the eighth, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Eighth day, I was born into Israel. I didn't convert to Israel. I was born in it the people of God, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That was important because Benjamin stuck with the southern tribe when the, when the kingdom fell apart and northern ten tribes rebelled. Benjamin was a faithful tribe, other reasons too. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, we were born outside of, of Israel, but we spoke Hebrew in the home. We use this Hebrew customs in the home. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Four things he inherited from his parents. And then he says, three things I did. Says to the law, I was a, what? Pharisee. The conservatives, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. He said, I'm a conservative Jew with all of the, the doctrine and all of the laws. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to the zeal of the church, I was a persecutor. Doesn't get more committed than that. And number, number three, I have a, the righteousness. As to the righteousness, perfect. Pharisee, persecutor, perfect. There is a tendency to slip back from a Jesus only to a Jesus and. For me, I, I got to be honest, it wasn't so much for salvation. I was raised Baptist, man. I knew I was a sinner. <laughs> I keep this piece of coal in my office to remind me. It was a gift from one of my congregation, I think. It's hard. Coal is hard. And it reminds me, my heart would never have been transformed if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit. Um. And I didn't have the tendency to want to add to my salvation. I just wanted to add to my sanctification. I wanted to add to my identity. I'm going to do all these things for you, God. And it's going to be great. I knew I couldn't earn my salvation, but I thought I could earn my identity. 
as a person worthwhile. He had to teach me, no, not that either, because your identity is as a son, beloved, and me. So Paul takes all of the things he inherited, all the things he earned, and he threw them away, said they're garbage. Skabala is the Greek word. Skabala. Sounds like garbage, doesn't it? He says, all those things I inherited from my parents, skabala, garbage. Skabala is what they threw to the dogs to eat. All the traits I earned, skabala. That's the stuff they threw to the dogs to eat. Garbage. Jesus. Alone. And the righteousness that was imputed to him through faith, that's all he wanted. That's the crystal clarity of the gospel. Paul says, that's all I want to know. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I want to know him. I don't want to just know about him. We Presbyterians are good at knowing about him. I know more about him than I'm experiencing of him. So I want to know him personally and his power. And and it leads me to even want to suffer for him. I'll suffer for him. Because one day I'm going to be resurrected too. And so... And so Paul is, is leading us to a crystal clarity about what Christianity is. It's righteousness that is given through faith that transforms us all and sets us free. And so the, the challenge for us is to see, understand that the Spirit of God puts the grace of God in our heads and, and, and wants to move it into our hearts so that we become convinced of it. It's possible that, that some of you know the gospel, and have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you keep trying to add to it, that deep down there is this this legalistic, self-righteous tendency to add to it. Give that up and rest in him. And some of you, some of you are here, you got drug here, you don't even know why you're here, but the gospel, the great news, the great news is that it is about what Jesus accomplished. You don't have to perform for God. Just to receive him, receive Christ. And then to understand that the spirit of God moves into our lives to make us beloved daughters and sons and, and transforms even the affections of our heart so that even when we come to worship, we're worshiping God, not just out of our head, but out of our hearts too, the center of our being with our affections. To rejoice, some of you, Some of you just simply need to relax and rejoice because Christianity has become something you're enduring. Rejoice in his grace. And then the spirit of God will inevitably work through us to bring the character of Christ into our lives. This is all good news. And it's all modeled in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will that we will celebrate now as we take the Lord's Supper. I love the little kid who came back from the first day at kindergarten and his mother said, how did you like kindergarten? He said, I don't want to talk about it. And he didn't want to talk about it. If I, she let it go and she came back later and said, so how did you like the first day at kindergarten? He said, I, he said, I didn't like it because they had so many rules. <laughs> if there's anything a little boy needs in kindergarten, it's rules. But if there's anything we need in the gospel, it's grace. 
for redemption, for sanctification, for everything. And we have it in Christ. Let's pray together. Our great God, as we partake of communion, Lord Jesus, as we think deeply about about the gospel, we pray that you would bring that clarity into our hearts and minds and that you would speak to each one of us in whatever we need to hear right now. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name alone. Amen.